this is Susan Pakin, and you're listening to the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. I have therefore considered it essential to relieve General MacArthur so that there would be no doubt or confusion as to the real purpose and aim of our policy. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. U.S. warships and planes launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. After years of devastating cuts, we're now rebuilding our military like we never have before. Hello, and welcome back to Thank You for Your Service, a hard look at American civil military affairs from the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm Nick Pareso. Today we're bringing you an interview we did with Senator Claire McCaskill. Claire McCaskill was elected as a United States Senator from Missouri in 2006 and served until she was defeated for re-election in the 2018 midterms. Prior to that, she served as a prosecutor, state representative, and state auditor. After her election in 2006, she was appointed to the Senate Armed Services Committee, where she worked vigorously on congressional oversight of the military. Specifically, she focused on contracting and sexual assault reform. We sat down with her a few weeks ago while she was serving as a visiting fellow at the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. Senator Claire McCaskill, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time. So it seemed like throughout your political career, something that was really important to you was the idea of conducting oversight of government. And in your book, you actually described how the opportunity to conduct oversight was something that motivated your decision to run for the Senate in 2006. It was. Um, you know, as, as you all are maybe too young to remember, but in 2006, um, there was a lot of anguish about the Iraq War and whether or not the decision to go into Iraq was well thought out and whether there was an exit strategy. If, if the mission had gotten blurred, But one of the overriding things that became apparent was that there was money that was being wasted in some of the contracting in Iraq. And I'm a fangirl of Harry Truman, and any student of history will know that Harry Truman made his bones by the Truman Committee, which was basically him going around the country in a car with one staff member and visiting businesses that were profiting off World War II. And he exposed a lot of war profiteering. So I was anxious to get after that with my background as an auditor and a prosecutor. I felt like that if I got to Washington, I could try to dig in and figure out what went wrong with the contracting, particularly on logistical support in theater. So what were some of the ways, more specifically, that you saw issues with that contracting? Well, first of all, when I made my first trip to Iraq as a member of the Armed Services Committee, I didn't go over for the, um, I'm going to be kind now because I do love the military, I didn't go over for the standard PowerPoint because, as you all know, if you've been around the military, you can't go from one end of the block to the other without a PowerPoint. Uh, And so the PowerPoint presentations and the typical congressional visit to Iraq had a lot to do with the efficacy of the war. I didn't want that trip. I wanted a trip strictly on contracting. I wanted to go into an FBO, uh, a forward operating base, an FOB, and find who was the one with the clipboard that was actually figuring out what was the money going out on this contract. And um, the biggest contract was the log cap contract. And it became famous because this was Halliburton's contract to do um, logistical support in theater, things like building showers, 
you know, providing meals, um, doing some of the engineering that you would typically expect the Corps of Engineer to be doing in terms of uh, moving forward. So I started asking these questions over in Iraq, and I, I was stunned mm-hmm. at the lack of attention to this piece of the warfighting effort. And um, I can tell lots of stories about the first trip to Iraq. One of the stories, Ann Dunwitty, who was with me, who was the first woman four-star in the Army, she accompanied me over there, and she admitted to me on the trip back that everything we learned when we were there were part of the lessons learned out of Kosovo. So they had gone down this road, they had done sloppy contracting, they'd wasted hundreds and millions, and in Iraq, billions of dollars, and then they did it all over again in Iraq. (laughs) So what really had happened, if you take a bird's eye view, the military decided, the the commander-in-chief decided to move in Iraq. The military took that order and executed that order. They did not have the capability in terms of boots on the ground to do a lot of the support they needed. So they did a cost-plus contract with Halliburton, no bid. And cost-plus means whatever the product costs, they got plus a profit. So the incentive was for them to monogram hand towels in theater. And they did that. Believe it or not, they monogrammed hand towels in theater. Um, they, they had no incentive to keep the costs low and every incentive to keep the costs high. So we went after a number of things. We went after cost plus contracting. We went after uh, no bid contracts. We went after even things as simple as the contracting representative in each unit Um, that they have to be trained, and that there's accountability for the commander of that unit. If the contracting representative was not checking off things and figuring things out, um, let me tell you one final story, and then you can jump in if we need to change gears, we can. Uh, I'll never forget this. There are two stories I'll never forget. One, I was in a temporary building um, in Iraq um, outside of one of the main bases, and all of the brass was there for that area. I mean, there was a lot of fruit salad in the room, right? Lots of color, lots of stars. Mm-hmm. And they were doing a presentation to me on the log cap contract because I wanted to hear about it. And who did they have do the presentation? This nice civilian woman, okay? Nobody wanted to go near this presentation. So they push it off on this civilian woman who is in theater. And so she's supposedly the one who knows the most about it. So that's why they had her do it. So she does this presentation, and they had a bar graph about the billions of dollars that had gone out. It had gone to like $24 billion to $27 billion one year, and then it had come back down to like $23 billion. So I'm trying to throw her a bone. I'm trying to help her look good in front of all these guys because I'm feeling for her, right? It was so unfair to make her do this because they knew I was coming with my fangs bared, <laughs> right, and my claws out. So I, I say to her, I said, well, why don't you tell me what you did to bring the cost down that year? And she sat back in her chair and she looked at me and she looked around the room and she goes, I, I actually have no idea. And it was 2 or $3 billion difference. So it was such a moment that crystallized how the military had failed to see contracting as a core piece of their mission. And that was backed up by the general in Kuwait, uh, a mess over there, a lot of contracting out of Kuwait at the time. And I'm I'm like talking to him at this facility, and I said, how did you let this happen? And he looked me right in the eye and said, ma'am, I wanted three kinds of ice cream in the mess, 
and I wanted it yesterday, and I frankly didn't give a shit how much it cost. I went, holy cow, <laughs> this is why we have a contracting problem. Because the commanders right. really didn't think cost was an issue they needed to worry about. Yeah. I guess people hearing the story about this three ice creams, some of them might think it's a few bad apples, uh, senior officials that are the cause of this problem. Other people will look at these monogram towels and, and think that maybe it's systemic throughout the Department of Defense. What's your take on that? Which, which one of those two? Do you think is the issue? Well, the latter is is closer to the truth. Uh, I think at the time I did this, which was in 2007, 2008, 2009, uh, it was pretty systemic. I think there had been a, a wide failure of the Pentagon to address contracting abuses. We were able to pass the war contracting law. At, we got a contracting commission appointed. Uh, it was actually the way a commission is supposed to work. By the way, I did this work with Jim Webb. For those who don't know who Jim Webb was, Jim Webb was a senator who I served with who was one of the most decorated Marines in the Vietnam War and a, a very recognized author about that war and other things. Um, and he and I did this together, and with the help of John Warner, World War II veteran Republican who um, had been chairman of the Armed Services Committee, the Republicans resisted this War Contracting Commission because they thought it was going to be a political thing to go after Bush. And it really wasn't. We really wanted to clean up contracting. So we got the commission, and then we got the recommendations of the commission, and we actually got those recommendations passed into law. So there's now a contracting command. Um, there is now a requirement that the contracting representative in each unit uh, be trained. Uh, there is now uh, much more lines of accountability. It's very difficult to get a cost-plus program approved now. Um, you know, sometimes when you're in the Senate, you spin your wheels, and you don't really think you're getting anywhere, and especially if you're working in the Pentagon. I mean, it is pretty calcified there, guys. All of you that are uh, destined to work there someday, and I bet all of you will, because if the one thing the military does right it, it breeds good leaders, and it finds good leaders, and it promotes good leaders. Uh, they're really good at that. But um, a civilian employee at the Capitol went over and volunteered. If you're a federal employee, you probably know this. You can volunteer to go in theater and do support work that is civilian in nature. And somebody who worked in the research division of the Senate, of Congress, really, went over to um, uh, Afghanistan to help out on something, and he— she got back, and she called a member of my staff, and she goes, I think your boss would love to hear this story. When I was over there, we were sitting around a table, and we needed to get a hold of this stuff. And somebody said, I think we can get away with a no-bid contract. And at that moment, somebody in the room said, if you do, McCaskill will be all over your ass. And I'm going, <laughs> okay, we've made progress. And this was like five or six years after I began. Um, so I do think we've made progress, but there's still uh, so many problems with the way the Pentagon decides to purchase things, from the smallest things to entire weapon systems. I mean, the F-35 is a good example, where it is a weapon system that is a poster child for not on time, not on budget, not managed well. Um, you know, they kept changing the requirements, making it much more expensive, and then the pressure is to buy more of them, right? Because the more you buy, the less expensive each unit is. Well, you know, and so here they are saying we're going to buy more. Meantime, they're not ready. And so we've got flight decks empty. And I'm like going, what? F-A-18, 
85% capability, you know, not a problem. Let's fill in those gaps of half the price, 85% of the capability. What's wrong with you? Let's do a blend. And so th there's example after example I could come up with after 12 years of this work where the Pentagon has done better, but there's also lots of examples where they still have a long way to go. So you brought up the F-35. There's kind of this narrative out there that congressmen a lot of the time vote on defense policy issues, not really based on like the best interests of the armed forces or of the nation, but rather on local concerns from their districts, right? Jobs, contracts. How did you see that play out and how did political concerns basically with your constituents affect the work that you did with the Armed Services Committee? Well, I, I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, it's hard. Um, I have Boeing in St. Louis. That's where the FAA 18 is built. Thousands and thousands and thousands of really well-paid employees. It would be a brutal hit on the St. Louis economy if that line shut down. Um, now, Boeing is busy getting contracts on other things in the future, and so it was never like I felt that I was responsible for keeping the doors open at Boeing. But it certainly was a consideration that, um, now, I, I was lucky in that the product that was built in my district was cheaper and almost as good as the one that they'd screwed up on. So I never felt guilty about raising the flag for the FAN 18 because it was a value for taxpayers. But I can tell you stories in defense markup um, where the votes were clearly not along the lines of Republican and Democrat, and not along the lines of a, a, a policy consideration, but rather along the lines of who had contractors in their districts. And what these defense contractors have done is kind of evil, because what they've done is they've spread out the supply chain for all these various weapon systems so they're in at least 25 states. We'll do the math. If they're in 25 states, that's two senators per state, you got 50 votes right there. So shutting down, um, whether it's, you know, um, you know, we have that, the low-flying uh, air, aircraft that they've been trying to shut down. There's helicopters they're trying to shut down. Uh, and every time they try to, the military does the right thing and says it's time for us to move on and we need to begin to transition out of this, this uh, frame, uh, the people in those districts, I mean, the, the lobbyists for the defense contractors just flip a switch and they've got all these senators going, no, nah. I mean, one of my favorites, I love Angus King. But I remember the markup where he was insistent on getting New Balance tennis shoes as one of the options for the military because they're made in Maine, right? And he was like just beside himself that the only, uh, you know, PT wear shoes available um, was, was, uh, were not made not in America. Either. So he was able to dress it up with let's get American-made shoes, but he was really, you know, towing the line, um, towing, get it? <laughs> um, for for New Balance, which was a, a, a main product, um, and you know, so there were there were moments like that. John McCain was helpful in those moments, uh, and so was Carl Levin because they were very good working partners. And John McCain was really pretty good at trying to squash the parochial nonsense when it got out of control. So what's what's the solution to that? Is it just more senators need to stick up and say? You know what? It's not about getting the money back home. There are bigger issues than this. We need to look at cutting down spending uh, as a good for the good of the nation. Or is it? Are there policy solutions that we need to look at instead? Well, if I were the Secretary of Defense, I would um, try to impact the decision making as to 
I would put into the RFPs for these systems. You can have pieces of this um, frame or this tank or whatever only located in no more than 12 states. I just do it on the front end. I would limit them from doing what they're doing, you know, so they can't have 26 states that have a piece of, of the next uh, manless warfighter or the next tank or the next striker vehicle or whatever it is that we're getting ready to buy a bunch of. As China's role grows greater on the global stage, you want to stay up to date on the issues most pressing to China both domestically and internationally. Check out the Just China podcast for in-depth analysis on recent headlines and investigative reports on Chinese matters that affect our globalized world. We are Just China. Find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. So I was talking to one of my classmates um, from undergrad who is also in the Navy about this interview, and she was really excited about it because she said Senator McCaskill was one of the pioneers in reforming the way the military handles sexual assault. Talk about how you decided to take on that issue. Well, it's my background. Um, I had um, certainly, uh, the entire time I was in the Senate, no senator had tried more sexual assault cases than I had as a prosecutor. Uh, I knew this area of the law very well on the civilian side, and frankly, I was very familiar with the failures of the civil side. I mean, I began prosecuting rapists when in Missouri it was still legal to rape your wife. I mean, that's, you know, I'm showing that I'm older than dirt here, but um, it was, and, and where it was not uncommon for um, cases not to be filed because, you know, a woman was on birth control, and therefore that must mean that she was promiscuous, and therefore that must mean we can't convict the guy, or maybe he didn't really do it. So I watched the civilian system make progress in fits and starts over 20 years and get better. Victims having support systems, cases taken more seriously, investigations, and the gathering of evidence in a more professional way. So I was shocked when I began learning how far the military was behind. They weren't keeping rape kits. Um, They were, and as you all know, there are two ways you can report an assault in the military. You can do it on the record or you can do it secretly. And if you do it secretly, you still avail yourself of the services that you might be able to support services, but there's no way to ever go after the guy who did it. And in the military, it's a particular problem because if you have a predator in the military, they're going to move around. They're not going to stay in one place because, um, as you all will find, I'm sure, soon or before too long, uh, you know, you keep moving with your MOS. You go around the world. And so imagine how a predator can hide if there are if there's just one attack in every city or in every base or in every country and they never and the women never come forward so i began to really learn about the ucmj i began to learn about some of the quirks that were bizarre i began to learn about the ungodly power the commander had over the process and then there was this case at the air force base in italy where a man a, a, a pilot was convicted and then the commander threw it out and when he threw it out, he said things like, well, he's a really good pilot. And I'm going, whoop, 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 not, not, doesn't have anything to do with whether he rapes somebody. This is not going to, shouldn't be considered. So I began doing all kinds of reforms. And I can, there's probably at least 
30 major reforms to the Uniform Code of Military Justice that came about as a result of my work in, and also Kirsten Gillibrand helped me. They, we had one big disagreement, though, and that was the role of the commander in this process. Um, and I figured that was the next question, right? Yes, ma'am. Well, I knew it. Talk a little more about that. I, I knew it was. Um, this was probably the most difficult thing I did in my career in terms of the politics because there's this knee-jerk reaction of people who are not familiar with the military and not familiar with JAGs and not familiar with the UCMJ that, well, there's no way your boss should be able to decide whether a rapist is prosecuted. Well, that sounds pretty reasonable. Your boss should not get to decide that unless you dig in. And so I went to the Pentagon and I sat for meetings hour after hour with prosecutors in the military. I began to understand about a system that's deployable. I mean, that is amazing that you have a deployable system of justice, which um, allows a commander in theater to go after a barracks thief without lawyers from Belvoir flying over or trying to figure out what's going on a half a world away. And I also realized that what people's instinct was that the commanders were covering these crimes up, that the commanders were not going forward. So how the system works is there's an investigation by professionals, and there's a determination by a prosecutor that's a professional, and then that's recommended to the commander's JAG officer, and then the JAG officer makes a recommendation to the commander. So the issue is, were commanders going against the professional advice of the lawyers that Christian Gillibrand wanted to be in charge? And we couldn't find cases where they had. In fact, we found just the opposite. We found a bunch of prosecutors who said, this case is a dead-bang loser. You shouldn't go to court-martial. You shouldn't go the next step. And what happened in more instances than I, I was surprised, commanders were the ones that said, no, I want to get to the bottom of it. I think we need to air these facts in a court-martial. I think we need to get to the bottom of what really happened. So the commanders... It was counterintuitive, but the commanders were actually the ones that were pushing the envelope to make sure that these cases were being heard. They weren't covering them up. It was just the opposite. So, but it felt like I was taking the commander's side against the victims, which was heartbreaking to me. I mean, it's not who I am. It's not where I live. It's not what I know. Um, and every time we would counter their argument with facts, they'd move the goalposts. The first argument was, well, they did this in Israel, and they did this in Canada, and then we looked. No more women came forward. There were no more cases prosecuted. There was no uptick in the efficacy of their systems after that, so we pointed all those facts out. Well, then they moved to the next, you know, well, there, there's too much retaliation. And there is retaliation, but ironically, our surveys now show that the retaliation is not by the commander. It's by their, it's by like usually the sergeant or the peers. It's not the one making the decision as to whether cases go forward. So we've got a retaliation issue, but there was nothing in the proposal that, that Senator Gillibrand had that was going to change that. In fact, imagine if you're a victim. Imagine that you're stationed in um, Yemen, okay? And imagine that you come forward and are brave and say that this attack happened. And everybody in your unit knows it, right? Now, imagine if the commander of that unit on site says, yes, this case is going forward, versus a lawyer in Fort Belvoir that nobody knows. 
Now, who do you think is going to do a better job of protecting that victim? The lawyer in Fort Belvoir? First of all, everybody in the unit is going to say, well, that lawyer doesn't know crap about what's going on over here. They've probably never even been uh, forward in any kind of conflict. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they can't relate to what's going on here. And th- imagine the kind of pressure and retaliation the victim might have under those circumstances. It was a prosecutor in the military that said to me, a, prosecu- a commander in theater, a commander anywhere, is going to do a better job of monitoring and protecting the victim from retaliation than, than, than uh, Air Force or Army or uh, lawyers that are a half a continent away. So I had the side of the victims, but it felt like to people who weren't as knowledgeable as I was that I had the side of the big bad commanders. And mm-hmm. um, it was really hard. They took out full-page ads in the St. Louis paper and called me names. And to this day, uh, in fact, I'm sure they're, they're, they're chomping at the bit. The people that are pushing this believe there should not be a military justice system. They believe that all of the crimes in the military should be handled in the civilian justice system, which is incredibly naive because how are you going to do that in Germany? How are you going to do that um, across the world? It completely um, destroys the deployability of the UCMJ no matter where the military is in the world. Right. Sorry yeah. for so long. No, that's it, all right. It doesn't <laughs> yeah. lend itself to a soundbite. Yeah, definitely. It's complicated and hard. Yeah. We'd love to continue talking about it, but we're going to move on. In the last answer you gave just now, like, you brought up the hypothetical of a service member stationed in Yemen. And that lends itself to a whole other set of questions that a lot of people have about why, why is the military in places like Yemen? You broke with the majority of your colleagues, your Democratic colleagues, in 2017 when Rand Paul introduced the amendment to um, renegotiate the authorization for use of military force. And we were wondering what your decision-making process on that was and whether you think we need to think about the AUMF. Well, first of all, I think that there is a desperate need to update the AUMF. But here's the overarching problem, if I could take this from a bird's-eye view. I mean, this is a little academic, but I'm here at an academic institution, so it fits. The challenge we have with our military and the war that we are engaged in on a global basis is that people in America are still thinking of conflicts in the context of a sovereign nation. They're thinking of, you know, fighting Germany in World War II or, you know, you know, the Italian army uh, coming after us in in World War II or the Vietnam War where we were in one country and there was one conflict and it was confined to that country. What we have now since 9-11 is a recognized threat by our intelligence community that is worldwide and nobody wears a uniform. And it is um, an ideology. It's not a country. So how do you square that with an authorization of use of military force. And how do you square that with the rights that Americans have to um, not have their privacy violated or their rights violated if an American is in the UK and they're caught on a phone line with someone that is of interest within the terrorist network of either you know, you pick, it could be Taliban, it could be Al-Qaeda, it could be in your ISIS, it could be in your all of the above. You know, should we be listening to that American's phone call? Uh, well, how about if that American is on American soil? Should we be gathering information from that person? 
if they're talking to somebody who's a person of interest. It gets very complicated. And so that's why it's so hard for us to update this military force. How do you give the military and our intelligence community the bandwidth they need to go after people who are plotting against the West without violating constitutional norms and and provide the oversight and the accountability that Congress is supposed to be providing if we are at war. So it is, I mean, if this were simple, uh, it would have been updated by now. The reason it hasn't been updated by now is nobody can figure out how to do it in a way that works. And by the way, really smart people have been trying. Bob Corker's been trying. Uh, you know, d- there have been a number of, uh, Ben Cardin has been trying, and, you know, Democrats and Republicans, Tim Kaine has worked his heart out on this because he feels so strongly that Congress needs to come back and update it. Um, the, con- the conflict where I broke with my party after Trump got elected on um, selling weapons, particular, or the weapon providing to Saudi as vis-a-vis Yemen, really came about because I allowed the Obama administration to do that. So did most of my Democratic colleagues. And the rationale for it then is identical to what it is now. So I was looking at this as, wait a minute, I'm for it when Obama wants it, I'm against it when Trump wants it. That's what's wrong with Washington. You know, we shouldn't be making our decision on policy based on whether or not we like the president. I don't like the president. I think he is incompetent, irrational, a narcissist. I could go on and on about what a clown this guy is. But the bottom line is he was requesting the exact same thing the Obama administration requested. And I thought the rationale was sound. So that's why I voted that way. One final question. Um, Many of our classmates here at the Harris School will go into careers that are not directly related to national security. Um, but say one of them moves back home next year, runs for Congress, uh, they put, get, get put on the House Armed Services Committee, and they find themselves voting on military policies. What do you want them to know? Well, I want them to, um, first of all, hire, um, get really good military fellows. Um, I, I mean, I had just an amazing military staff when I was there. My first military LA uh, had been in Iraq and a really smart guy. Uh, he was still in the National Guard in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, same thing with my next military L.A., um, a, a former uh, a veteran, very smart. And then the military provides members of the Armed Services Committee fellows. And some of the people who are destined for great leadership positions in the military circle through the Capitol because they want you guys, hopefully it's all you guys in the future, they want you guys to get a grip on what Congress is like because the Pentagon has to interact with Congress. So it's kind of a little training ground for those who are on a leadership track within the military. So I would say to them, listen to those people. Do not be distracted by the headlines that are all about the controversy of a military action or a proposed military action or something that is in the paper. Dig down and get the perspective of uh, your staff who hopefully has had some military experience and then begin asking questions and make sure you understand both sides of the argument. Uh, I went to the Armed Services Committee, I'm gonna be honest with you. Uh, I wanted to do this oversight on military contracting and I was raised to really respect the military, but I wasn't sure about that military. I was like, really, I'm not sure these guys, I mean, they all may just be a bunch of cowboys that you know aren't thinking things through. And 12 years on that committee, I have immense, even though I pick on them, 
even though I go after them when they screw up, I have immense respect for America's military. If you look at some of the things the military have done that could not be done outside the military in a short period of time, for example, the integration of the military, that was done way before America was ready for it. And the military did it, bumps and, bumps and problems, but they did it. Same thing with, with openly gay service. I mean, think about how that was implemented, and I'm sure there's still some problems out there, but there is this leadership ethos in the military and the diversity of leadership. I mean, I have, um, I'll never forget when I finally figured out that I had seen more African-American generals and leaders in the military than I had ever seen in any kind of private enterprise that was comparable. I mean, there really is, um, I think, a, an admirable ability of the military to find leaders um, and, and, and not based on how you look or where you come from and to promote leaders and give them the tools they need. So I'm a big fan of the military now. And that came from learning about the military, mm-hmm. not from a distance. And so whoever gets on the Armed Services Committee, uh, they, they have a really fortunate opportunity to have a, a front row seat to the most amazing military in the world. I am convinced of that. Senator Pascal, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast and for being here at the Institute of Politics and Harris School of Public Policy. My pleasure, and thank you all for signing the dotted line uh, to to serve our country. You're going to be, I'm sure I'll be seeing you walking in and out of the Pentagon someday, and I hope you remember what I said about contracting. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today on Thank You for Your Service. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at TYFYS underscore podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you'll get our next episode as soon as it's released. Thank You for Your Service is produced by Haziano, Julian Lake, Ashwarya Kumar, and Mary Martha McClay. Our creative consultant is Sarah Claudi. Our publisher is David Rabon. Special thanks to Ellie Price. This podcast is a production of the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts and is definitely not in any way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of Defense or any other military entity. I'm Nick Pareso. And I'm Thomas Krasnation. See you next time. Hi, this is Jason Zukas, the host of Have You Heard? The UC3P News Quiz. Curious to know what our show's all about? Here, have a listen. Iceland has fielded a surprisingly successful team in recent World Cups. Iceland's coach, Heimar Hallgrimsson, has a skill set not limited to just soccer, however. Which of these things does he not do on the side? <laughs> a, work part-time as a dentist. B, dress up as an Icelandic troll during Christmas time. Oh or C, sell car insurance to friends and family. Oh man, I feel like he definitely does the troll thing. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure. I wouldn't be shook if he was a dentist. I'm gonna go with car insurance. That's correct, he does not do that. <laughs> If you enjoyed that clip, come check out all of our episodes by searching for Have You Heard? UC3P on your preferred podcast platform, or join one of our upcoming live shows. Just go to facebook.com slash hyhnewsquiz for more info on our next show. See you there!